1: This is Famous and Gravy, a show where we study famous lives in search for the secret sauce to living well. Now for the opening quiz to reveal today's dead celebrity.
2: This person died 2022, age 68. One critic said he had, quote, a low key act that could fit comfortably into the category of family entertainment. This is making me think of a comedian.
0: It's got to be like one of the Smothers Brothers or something like that.
2: Not a Smothers brother. He had a self-deprecating style that won him legions of fans, among them Henny Youngman and Johnny Carson, whose early support catapulted him to stardom.
3: Robin Williams.
2: Not Robin Williams. He had small roles in Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Coming to America.
3: Oh my gosh, I know Ferris Bueller's Day Off like the back of my hand. Judd Nelson.
2: Not Judd Nelson. He was nominated three times for a supporting actor Emmy, which he won in 2016. That's awesome! I'm so glad for him.
0: <laughs> oh, step <laughs> <laughs> um, on my dog!
2: His comedy routine was heavy on jokes about his own weight, which topped 300 pounds at times.
3: Is it Moot? It's it's uh it's not Louis. It's that comic that the the big goofy guy, Louis Anderson.
2: Uh, um, Louis Anderson.
3: It's Louie Anderson.
2: Today's dead celebrity is Louie Anderson.
3: Uh, my next guest is named uh, Louie Anderson. He's a comedian. He's making his first appearance on national television. I can't stay long. I'm in between meals, so bear with me. <laughs> <laughs> I am from Minnesota. Any Minnesotans? <laughs> <laughs> Could I get a ride home with you? <laughs> <laughs> well, where would we put him? My favorite thing is when you go over to someone's house and you're fat. They, they overcompensate. Oh, come on in, Louie, sit down here on this concrete sofa. You know what I do? Head right for that wicker.
2: Welcome to Famous and Gravy. I'm Michael Osborne. My name is Amit Kapoor. We are midlife give or take, and we believe that the best years might lie ahead. So on this show, we study a celebrity who died in the last 10 years. We go through a series of categories in search of ingredients to life that we might desire and ultimately ask a big question, would I want that life? Today, Louis Anderson, died 2022, age 68. Category one, grading the first line of their obituary. Louis Anderson, the genial stand-up comedian, actor, and television host who won an Emmy Award for his work on the series, Baskets, and two daytime Emmys for his animated children's show, Life with Louis, died on Friday in Las Vegas. He was 68. Kind of like it out the gate. Yeah, I did too, actually. The one word that popped out for me was genial.
1: Yeah, definition, please.
2: Yep, I've got it right here. Friendly and cheerful. Perfect. Yeah, he's such a sweet guy. Like, big heart, I mean, you feel it? Everybody who's around him has this, like, smile at him, kind of love this guy energy, you know? Genial is also, like, a really nice word. Whoever wrote this obituary was like, what's a great word that captures his vibe and what it's like to be around him? You don't hear it a lot. Like, I don't hear people described as genial all that often. It's really perfect. Like, high scores
1: out of the gate for verbiage. Yeah, Um, I like the reversed bookend, too, that start with most recently he won these Emmys. And by the way, he also won Emmys two, three decades ago.
2: One of the things about stand-up comedians is it's funny that I feel like it's never enough to just be a stand-up comedian. Like, if you think about who we've done on the show, Gary Shandling, they had to point to The Gary Shandling Show and Larry Sanders. Norm MacDonald, they point to his run on SNL. Joan Rivers, her... You know, experience as a host. But I mean, all of those people, I think, would first and foremost call themselves stand up comics. Yes. Like somehow that is never enough.
1: Yeah, because stand up comedy in itself, I don't think has these big anchor points. You know, there's not one album or one special very, very rarely that defines the entire stand up comedian. But by pointing to these projects that they did that stand up led to, you have an anchor rather than just a continuous moment of a career.
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Is this perfect, oh, Uh No, we have to always play the missing game. Okay, I think there's one thing missing here. Hmm. His weight. First line? I don't know. It's so noticeable. It's so visual. It's so, like, such a part of his acts and his roles in a way. Like, it factored into his comedy all the time. <laughs>
3: oh, boy. People say, Louis, why do you do those fat jobs? Because if I didn't, you guys would sit out there and go, do you think he knows he's that big? (laughs) Like I woke up one morning, oh no. (laughs)
2: Honey, get in here. It feels a little bit awkward, obviously, to say like the overweight or heavy or obese or any word you might want to use here. But it is also like, if you're... Reading this obit to somebody, and you say he's a stand up comic and a host and an actor, you might be like, Oh, I'm not sure. But if you said he was a big guy, yes, you probably would, right? So there is a a quality of you know him for that, yes, right? For better or worse. Uh, You know, maybe the respectful thing is to not speak to it in the first line of the obituary, and I'm on board with that. But it's worth talking about.
1: You're right, because it is a very defining part of who he was. All of these roles and all of the comedy we talk about is largely centered around his size. Uh, Yes, exactly. Um, It is a disservice, possibly information-wise, in in informing the reader and forming the picture of who this person was. So there's a part of your stomach.
0: Yeah. That has, uh, gremlins in it. Yeah. I think they're a, uh, hormone. Okay. Oh, right. And right. so at night, yeah. Those are the things that go, hey, yeah. Mark. Yeah. Starving. <laughs> we just ate. Oh, <laughs> uh, we didn't really eat. We're, we're starving.
2: I hadn't thought about this before, but if you think of somebody who's very short or very tall or very large or somehow their physical appearance is central to the nature of their fame. Yes. Then, you know, is there usually an obligation for the New York Times or any other obit writer to make note of it in the first line?
1: So the verdict then, is it a proper omission or is it a negligent omission?
2: I think it's actually a proper omission. I I, I don't think that there is a graceful,
1: respectful way of doing it. Do you think it's an omission? I'm, no, I think I'm on your side. It is an omission. I think it is possibly an intentional uh, right thing to do omission.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, what else? What other are, are there other omissions you would put in here? I, I mean,
1: it, this is just the tough part of Louis Anderson. There's not like the proper noun to attach to him right. that, that defines it that you will instantly go back to.
2: And they did get in here, stand-up comedian, actor, and television host. That's all right. That's all like, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with those are the three things that- he mostly did, right? Okay. There's even a little bit died on in Las Vegas, and I think he's got a real close association with Vegas because he set up camp there and made, essentially made a career there later in life. Fully lived there for, yeah, for
1: upwards of 10 plus years. Yeah. Right. Yeah,
2: I mean, I think it sounds like closer to 20 after Family Feud. So I don't, yeah, I mean, I, I'm actually, I've got my score. I'm giving this a 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. I, I really don't think that there's more they could have, should have done, and I'm satisfied with what this says. And I think it is like a very succinct description of who he was, I, I suppose you could make a case. The, his voice is so unique that you almost like if you wanted to add on to this, you could maybe say something more about it. But I just thought of that. I mean, so I'm giving it ten out of ten. I'm in
1: a generous mood today. God, I hate giving a ten out of ten. All right, there's got to be something wrong. But well, I don't I just gave giving... you. I just gave you something—the voice. But, I, but I'm not. I'm not just going to do that for the sake of it. Um, so I'm still going very high. I'm going an A plus. I'm going to give a nine. Okay. Okay. The reason that it's not a ten is wow. wow.
2: You know, there, are wow certain, you?
1: there are certain things that I see and I come out and I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know that I've had that in a first line of an obituary, and maybe that's why I think I've doled out 110. Yeah. So I'm, I'm giving it a very standing ovation nine. Okay.
2: Category two, five things I love about you. Here, Amit and I come up with five reasons why we love this person, why we want to be talking about them in the first place. I want to say something before I get into it. I realized when I was looking back over my notes, all of these are, in a sense, variations on a theme. They are all about self-love and self-care, and I didn't realize that I did that until after I put my notes together, but I actually am sort of glad it came out that way because I do think that on the surface, it's not obvious that there is a lot of self-love and self-care in Louis Anderson's life. So there's my qualification. These are all variations on that theme, in a sense. It's something I've come to pay attention to in our show, funnily enough, ever since the Florence Henderson episode, where we talked about, uh, you know, hypnotherapy, yes. right? That was such a weird one to me. But it's also like, huh, I want to have a good, nice laundry list of things that fall into the category of self-love and self-care. And so it's something I'm sort of looking for. And as soon as I applied that filter to Louis Anderson's life, I saw more than I would have expected. That is a pretty good segue to my number one letter writer. He wrote letters to achieve closure. And he did this twice in two books, once to his father and once to his mother, where the whole book is just him writing letters to his deceased parents. And a lot of it is saying things he always wanted to say. Anyway, it kills
0: me that I didn't ask you a bunch of things that I think about more and more these days. I often think about childhood and our family and the things that make us who we are. I mean,
2: these are not in a way, easy books to read. They're a series of letters, so there's not like a you know, dynamite narrative structure or something. It's not like a, a page turner. But I got to thinking, there was a time in my life where I wrote letters. These days I write emails. It's not the same thing. Pen to paper is a different experience You know, in terms of what you put into it, how thoughtful it looks. But even more than that, I have on more than one occasion written a letter to somebody who I'm not sure if it's ever going to find them or reach them, but I put words on the page saying, here's something I need to say to you, oftentimes in the kind of regret category. And there is something really healthy, I think, about that exercise, and Louie Anderson did that. Okay. So I'm going as simple as letter writer.
1: Okay. Have you written a letter lately? Uh, I've written a lengthy email. Okay. Yeah. That's different. No, then I haven't written a letter. I mean, I, 20 plus years. So
2: isn't, it, isn't this, like, not a bad idea to think about that, right? Are there people out there who, relationships out there, or anything in your life or your past where you're like, ugh, when I think about that one, ugh, you know, I got a pit in my stomach, where, you know, maybe if I wrote a letter to that person and never sent it, like, doesn't that, imagining that, like, you know, have some sort of, like, I don't know, light at the end of the
1: tunnel, hope, resolution around it? Yeah, so I will say this. I've, I've been at the other end. Yeah. I've been at the receiving end of a letter, and I think we've even talked about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do love it. I, I do think it's a great act of, I don't know, closure, but at least it's catharsis.
2: Maybe a better way to say it is as an act of forgiveness. And I think Louis talks about this with his father as a, you know, he had an alcoholic father. This guy was abusive, and he came from a family of 11 children. I mean, you never knew what the hell you were going to get. I mean, classic sort of, you know, childhood of alcoholic, right? He talks about his book about his father as being an exercise in learning how to forgive this man. So maybe it's not closure so much as forgiveness. And I think with his mother, the forgiveness is on him, that he's doing this for himself. I'm saying these things to you now, mom, and I wish you were here and I miss you. So I love that about him. So that's
1: my thing number one. I like it. I like it a lot. Thing number two. Thing number two, he was a first name guy. Yeah. And this I picked up from an interview that Jonathan Crystal gave. You know he is. No. He was one of the co-creators of Baskets. More more exciting to me, he was a co-creator of Portlandia. Yes. Even. Okay.
2: I do know who he is now. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Big,
1: big, comedy writer guy. Friends with Louis. They worked together on Baskets. So he told a story about.
2: Do we did to explain Baskets to people. I mean, I think just very briefly. It's a Zach Galifianakis TV show where Louis Anderson plays Zach Galifianakis's mother, and she's a mother of four. Uh, Zach has a twin. Their brothers are called Chip and Dale. Right? Yes. And, <laughs> and then there's
1: there's adopted
2: brothers as well.
1: And he was a rodeo clown. Yes. Who basically, it's a very Zach Galifianakis character. Yeah, a lot of drag humor in this. in and, and out like, of living with his mother.
2: But, like, Louie Anderson ended up getting nominated and winning Emmys for this role. Yes. Yeah, playing it in drag, playing it as a woman, right? Yes. Now, you know, where would
0: I be if I didn't have my son? Yeah. I wouldn't oh, be... Yeah. I wouldn't be able to meet all these interesting
1: people. There yeah, you go, that's right. You know, yeah, that's what I don't we, yeah, think you man. realize
0: what you, yeah. you add to my life. Cool. Well, I'd be just an old woman sitting on a, on a couch alone, you know? But here I am with world travelers, clowns, performers.
1: Okay, so they go to Lid's, mm. you know, like the shopping mall hat store. Yeah. And they'd like, gone in the morning and place the order, and then they come back to pick him up. And Louis is uh, just chatting up the guy at Lid's, and and Jonathan's thinking, oh, they must have, like, really know each other. And it was, no, they, they met that morning, and Louis was just genuinely interested in the guy and chatting with him, and they struck up a friendship. Yeah. Jonathan said that one of the secrets to that was... Louis was always a first name guy with people that he met casually, specifically maybe service workers or people that are are working in stores or transactional environments. Yeah. You know, he'd always make an, an effort to learn the first name and address the person by the first name. And I absolutely love that. yeah. Because I've tried to practice it and it really is a life-changing thing. If you do it and you do it with the right intention, really wanting to know how this person's day is, really wanting to just have some chat, to glean something from them, know something about their life. Yeah. It makes them being seen. It lets you sort of create a connection. You exist more deeply in this intertwined world. And it's that simple as just asking the first name, remembering it. And sticking to it. I love that. This is great, Amit. Yeah. Yeah. And sounds like Louie Anderson was one of those guys. Yeah. My dad's one of those guys. I think I'm kind of one of those guys. You are. I, I was to actually be. gonna
2: say that. I mean, we went out for drinks the other night and I you know, you always ask the name of the waitress or
1: the waiter. Yeah, I do. I do, yeah. and I because I like I like it. I'm not like yeah. trying to be like get better service.
2: No, but you said the key thing in there. It is seeing somebody. Just by like acknowledging somebody's name, they are a little bit more seen. And most people are walking around in the world unseen most yes. of the time, right? And learning somebody's name and using their name when you address them is a very small but extremely meaningful gesture. Totally. And it's very telling. It's yeah. Very telling. That's great. That's a great number two. First name guy. Okay. Thing number three for me. Mm-hmm. This one's a little heavy, but I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there. Okay. Proud Crier. Ooh, ooh.
1: Yeah. Okay.
2: This came up in the interview he did with Mark Maron. He says something to Mark Maron like, Do you cry? And Mark Marin's like, I don't know, not really. And he's like, You should. Like, he, he talks about crying as a good, healthy thing to do. Louie Anderson experienced a lot of trauma in his life. He talks about that on stage and in our interviews a lot. I put it as a thing I love about him because this is not something that is easy for me. I cry. I wouldn't deny that. But I'm not proud about it. When tears come to me, I, my gut reaction is to fight him back.
1: Withhold him. Yes. Yeah,
2: totally. Like I, I got it into my head as a boy somewhere that it is an unmanly thing to do, to cry. And I feel like I know better now that there's a lot, like my head knows better. Intellectually, I know better. Look, crying is okay. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It's like a healthy thing to do. I can hear that. It does not come easy to me to sort of cry in front of anybody else. But I like that he told Mark Maron, it's a good thing to do. You have nothing to be ashamed of. And you don't see a lot of men saying that. I think there's an obvious vulnerability around it. And I think as much as we try and redefine gender roles, I think that this is a real sticking point. It's a real action that says a lot about where we are and are not as an evolved society. So I love that about him, and I'm impressed by it. I'm a terrible
1: crier. I I, 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 I'm just not. I don't do it often. I don't do it well. It's Always feels good, whether it's for grief or for joy. Yeah, but I I bury it. That's I bury the thing. It. I it does
2: feel good, right? Yeah. I mean, if you get it out, it feels good, and it's sort of like it's confusing to me. I remember I had I had to put a cat down once. A cat I grew up with that I absolutely loved. Sophie was her name, and yeah. I was around like nineteen or twenty or something. I was at my parents' house; they were out of town. The cat got really sick. Took it to the vet. They said. We might be able to get another year or so out of this cat, but it kind of looks like time. But they left the decision in my court. I said, okay, you know what? I think it's time. Let's put this cat down. I was actually very close with this cat. She used to come, you know, sleep on my bed and was very sweet. And whenever I was home from, like, college or whatever, like, she sought me out. There was a connection I had with this animal. And so I made the decision, and she let out this awful yelp right before her final moment. And I... I stumbled out of the vet clinic into the parking lot and just fucking lost it. Yeah. I mean, completely balled my eyes out. Totally caught me off guard. I wasn't ready for it. I can't, I can't remember a time in life where I was like that caught off guard by my own reaction to tears, right? And it was a good, like, that's a good reaction to that moment. I just made a decision to put down an animal that I cared about. And, like, there's a lot of emotion around that. And... Just hearing Louie Anderson say, you should cry, it's a good thing. It always feels better. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't hear that that often. And I think it's important for somebody who is vulnerable to say it
1: publicly. Yes. So that's my thing number three. Okay. Really like it. Number four. Oh, God, it's number four. This is perfect. He could tell a four-word joke. (laughs) Ah! <laughs> I uh, knew there was going to be a pun attached to number four. Uh, I, didn't know, right. I didn't know it was going yeah. to work out that way. Uh, the forward joke that I picked up on was broad jump killed her. Of course, what brought me to California was the Olympics. I was uh,
3: tried every event for the Olympics. Uh, tried that pole vault. I drove that sucker right into the ground. <laughs> I did a good thing though. I straightened out those uneven parallel bars. <laughs> Broad jump, killed her. (laughs)
1: there's just genius behind it. And yeah. this is the thing that I think is possibly one of the most underestimated things uh, about Louis Anderson is the guy's really smart and sharp. Yes. You know, because I think of the weight and a lot of the self-deprecating humor that defined him more early on, you yeah. kind of see him as just a jokester. Right. But no, he's actually really sharp. So I think the ability to to craft and tell a four-word joke is genius. It, it reminds me of a couple of things. It reminds me of our last conversation about Tom Wolfe, mm. about like, and creating words that last. Yeah. You know, this is all about words and it's all about just taking these tiny things and making them so effective and so powerful. Yeah. It is drilling down into complete and total simplicity to get a perfect message out there. And I strive I know for you it. love
2: that. I know you love the like really succinct, tight economical messages. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what I'm giving to Louis. He can yeah. tell a four word joke. I love it. Perfect for number four. Okay, I I've got a number five. Comedy is therapy. There is a conversation that, in retrospect, is very bittersweet between Bob Saget, and Louis Anderson, where because uh, they they died like essentially within a month of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, where Bob Saget asked Louis Anderson, "Did you ever think about becoming a counselor or a therapist or anything like that? You you seem to have the right instinct for that sort of job, that role." And he's like, "I find." Comedy to be therapeutic. I think you could make the case that that's true for just about all comics, and that's fine. I do think that there is a, if I laugh at it, some of my trauma loses power. There's a way for me in which Louis Anderson's comedy goes a level deeper, and I think it's because it's so primal. It is often about family, and it is often about his struggle with his weight and with his self. That I do think there's such a lightheartedness to it that I admire the disarming power of humor, and I think it's really, really important. So he actually was a social worker
1: before he became a comedian. He worked with kids, right? Yeah, Yeah. and it was basically, he was was just taking the same skill yeah and you know putting it a little more inward but by doing that presenting it outward for other people
2: and i mean i think it's interesting that he worked with kids in a way i really enjoy that about him i think he's got that family friendly vibe i'd go so far as to say with every episode of researching for famous and gravy i almost always have to wait till after my kids go to sleep i watched a ton of stand-up comedy with my kid with my nine-year-old and he was laughing the whole time. Like it was. It, it's the first time I've ever connected with my son over stand-up comedy. Oh, you must have loved it. I idea. loved it. I yeah. absolutely loved it. I was like, do you want to come here and do some more research with me? Let's sit and watch this guy. So, you know, comedy is therapy. Let's recap. Number one, I said letter writer. Number two, you said— the First name guy. I really enjoy that one. I'm, I'm going to have to incorporate that into life. Number three, I said proud crier. Number four, you said— Forward joke. And then number five, I said comedy is therapy. Category three. Malkovich, Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich in which people take a portal into John Malkovich's mind and they can have a front row seat to his experiences. This is a well-known one, but I just love it. The Coming to America story. I think it happens in 87 and it's before Coming to America comes out. And this is how Louis Anderson came to be in the movie Coming to America, the Eddie Murphy blockbuster. So, Louie Anderson had had his Tonight Show experience. He was already kind of a well-established comic. He didn't know Eddie Murphy really well, but he knew him a little bit from, it sounds like the Comedy Store and other stand-up clubs around L.A. And Eddie Murphy's huge at this Eddie point. Eddie Murphy, it's a little hard to overstate like how big Eddie was in the 80s. I mean, he has just been on a lightning streak with trading places, Beverly Hills Cop, 48 Hours, the stand-up raw and delirious and all that. Like he was such a blockbuster star. So Louis Anderson is eating at this restaurant. I think it's a fairly well-known, like you're often you're likely to run into celebrities at this restaurant. And Eddie Murphy comes in with his entourage, and Louie Anderson pulls a waiter over and he says, "Hey, listen, here's my American Express card.
0: Put Eddie's bill on my card, but don't tell him till after I leave. I'm not doing it to, to be a big show. I'm doing it because I'm from the Midwest and that's something you would do.
2: Mm.
0: So I did it because nobody ever buys Eddie's. Yeah, I, be- I didn't think. And that's the kind of thing I like to do. So the next day I get a call, I'm doing this little movie called Coming to America." I'm gonna get a I'm gonna put a part in it for you.
2: Wow. wow. Are you serious? I'm
0: serious. And it was uh the best six hundred and sixty dollars
2: I ever spent. Uh he, he's later called the token white guy in coming to America. My Malkovich is. Why did he do this? You know, he he. I've heard him say in the interviews, yeah, it's kind of a Midwestern thing. We just do that, but that's not sufficient explanation for me. Like he 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 says, you know, nobody's ever going to pick up Eddie Murphy's tab. That's what I
1: picked up on. Yeah, yeah.
2: And, and 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 I I love that, right? I don't know how much money Louis Anderson has at this moment, but that's what a like hell of a gesture. Like here's somebody who is a crazy big deal comes into a restaurant with you know an eight person or more entourage. Screw it, I'm gonna buy their lunch. What a move, you know? Yeah. And it winds up leading to what is ultimately a really important role in Louis Anderson's career. That cameo, I mean, it's not a big part, but you know, everybody remembers it.
0: Hello! Hi! You know, I started on cleanup just like you guys, but now, see, I'm washing lettuce. Soon I'll be on fries, then the grill. A year or two, I make assistant manager. And that's where the big bucks start rolling in.
2: It's a Malkovich for me because I want to, like, one, I love the move. But two, you know, what was he thinking about when
1: he said, I'm going to buy that meal? What I think is that he sees Eddie Murphy, who probably is enjoying fame and recognition more than Louis Anderson ever did. He sure looked like it in the 80s. But it was like, how can I make somebody happy that uh, really seemingly has everything? Because... The, the key word there is seemingly. Yeah. Right? like yeah. You, you don't get enough surprise and delight. Yeah. Right? And you still need it. Yeah. All right. That's my Malkovich. Okay. Great one. All right. Mine uh, is going to be almost 30 years later, 2016. Mm. Are you familiar with the show Drunk History? I am. Okay. I'm glad you brought this up. One of my favorite shows ever. So Derek Waters, the creator of Drunk History, is a big Louis Anderson fan. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you're familiar with drunk history, he brings in lots and lots of random people to play bit parts or tell stories. Yep. And so they're doing an episode called The Roosevelt. But stories about history, like famous
2: moments in history. Correct. Right? It's yeah. it's
1: a real history being retold by drunk people and simultaneously acted out semi-silently by real actors.
2: Like reenacted in a way.
1: Yeah. So we'll have to put one in the show notes. Unfortunately, this specific episode is behind a paywall, so I couldn't not find it, but we'll put a Drunk History something in the show notes. Yeah. So anyway, Derek Waters, the creator of Drunk History, who also starred in a lot of it, was a Louis Anderson fan. They're doing this episode called The Roosevelts. There is a segment on it uh, about FDR's relationship with Winston Churchill. Yes. (laughs) And he's like, I got it. Louis Anderson is going to play Winston Churchill. Yes. And this is the Malkovich part of it is dressing up and playing Winston Churchill. Mm. And it's because of this. Through his entire career, he's made to be sort of a self-deprecating big guy. It's all part of the act. It's all part of the jolly and the genial. It's part of the therapy exactly as you said. Yeah. Never before did I see a sign of it being power. And Winston Churchill still, you know, is so revered for his power, his intelligence, his strategy. And a lot of that did come with his size. Winston Churchill was Louis Anderson's size, yeah. And so by getting to play churchill in 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 this comedic sense, you know, he's getting to put Hitler in a headlock. He's getting to play battleship with FDR. I want to be there behind his eyes as he gets to enjoy his size for its power, and so I loved that Louis got to do that. I saw joy in his eyes as he described it. I wanted to be behind the eyes as he felt that joy and that power. It's
2: great, Malkovich. Let's pause for a word from our sponsor.
1: Michael, you know when we go to restaurants and I don't know what to order? Then ultimately I'll just ask the server, well, what should I order next? Yeah. And I wish a similar thing existed for other things I consume, like like books. Did you say for books? For books.
2: Oh, well that's easy. If you go to Half Price Books, there are all kinds of people who work in the store who are excellent at recommending books. Have you ever done this
1: no i've never known to ask them i thought they were just
2: they are knowledge keepers they are readers and they are there to say hey how can i help you what are you reading these days what are you into what are you looking for i mean every time i've gotten into a conversation with one of the half price books employees i've always walked out of there with something
1: new that was excellent so you're saying i can go ask a half price books Bookseller if I don't know what to read next or I'm looking for a gift idea? I
2: think that's exactly right. You don't need to know what you're going to buy when you walk into Half Price Books. And if you just need a book, these people are there to help. And you know what? Half Price Books is the nation's largest new and used bookseller with 120 stores in 19 states. And Half Price Books is also online at hpb.com. Hey, Famous and Gravy listeners, Michael Osborne here. I have a podcast I want to tell you about. This one is near and dear to my heart. It is called Sound Judgment, and it's all about what it takes to become a beloved podcast host. Amit and I were actually interviewed for Sound Judgment. The episode is releasing on Thursday, June 29th, and I cannot tell you how thrilled we were to be a part of this show because the whole podcast is excellent. Elaine Appleton-Grant goes behind the scenes with today's great podcast hosts to dissect episodes and show how creators make audio storytelling magic. Part of what makes it so special is that it is, one, a recommendation engine. It's a great place to find new shows. But two, it's a real fun behind-the-scenes exploration of what makes great audio storytelling work. So Ahmed and I's episode, which again releases on Thursday, June 29th, is definitely worth a listen, but I absolutely encourage you to check out the whole back catalog. Elaine Appleton-Grant is just a gem. Very thoughtful conversations. I think you'll enjoy it. Sound judgment. Check it out. Category four, love and marriage. How many marriages, also how many kids, and is there anything public about these
1: relationships? I'm very confused here on this one, so you're going to have to talk me through a lot of it.
2: I'll tell you what I found. It's pretty simple, essentially. There are, I think, two marriages, and they were both kind of back-to-back. The first one is a woman named Diane Jean Vaughn. This is around 1984. Louis is 31. They divorced after four months. Then in 1985, he married his high school sweetheart, a woman named Norma J. Walker. They divorced after four weeks. And that's it. That's it. Louis Anderson was otherwise single and uh, no children. So that is the whole story, as is publicly available. He doesn't talk about these marriages or his love life at all almost anywhere else. There's almost nothing to be said here.
1: Let's just take these two marriages that lasted. It sounds like a total of five months. Age thirty one, thirty two, and also 30s. this is his emergence, right? Yeah, this is after his car is the Carson appearance,
2: and we have to point out that you know he he kills it on his first Carson appearance. I mean. You know, so much so that Johnny says, "Come back out," and from then on, his life was on a different trajectory.
1: Yeah, and this is exactly when he gets married back to back as he's on this trajectory. So I'm wondering if he's like, "Okay, I'm validated," you know, I've made it, and I need to just get things in order. Right? I need to ride this wave. I need to, and, and maybe this is why he's jumping into these marriages at this time. Yeah. What do you see in that, that like this is the upward trajectory, this is the beginning of it, and he does these back-to-back marriages never to be repeated again?
2: I think I have more to say on this in a
1: later category.
2: Okay. All we should and could say right now is we do not know.
1: Okay. And we don't even know who
2: ended these marriages. It sounds like it was mutual. He did say that, and he did say we both realized this was a mistake. But no, we don't know much. And he very rarely spoke to it. It didn't come up in the biographies I read.
1: Yeah. It sounds like he took a few swings, tried it, didn't work, I think, for an explosive amount of reasons. Yeah. One of those, we need to get out there. Like, his sexuality is not even fully known. There's a scandal that comes up later in his life where he
2: sounds like proposition to man and... I mean, it was really hard to get details about what all happened, but this was at a time when he was kind of claiming space in in family-friendly territory. And so I think he was worried that any kind of relationship or interaction that didn't speak to family values as understood in the 90s would threaten his career. He initially paid off this guy who blackmailed him, and then when the guy came back for more money, he got the FBI involved. The FBI staged a sting operation, caught him, and ended up throwing him in jail. When Louie Anderson talks about this whole incident and affair, he says, I was drinking a lot at the time, I was kind of out of my head, and I was a little bit drunk on fame. But he's pretty dismissive to not say much of it. It cannot help but make you wonder, was he gay? Or was he bisexual? So there's this incident. And then there is another incident with a young comic saying that Louis Anderson acted perhaps inappropriately. That comic then was like, I didn't mean to overstate that Louis Anderson's a good guy. Don't ask any more questions. And everybody kind of moved past it. I think we don't know enough to say anymore. We know he never married again, and it's possible. So where did you and I take this, Amit? Because this is, if if he was gay, he never said it. No. And so I kind of want to be respectful. On the other hand, you know, I don't know. Should we talk about the possibility that he may have remained closeted for his entire adult life up until 2022? Maybe, and that concerns me. Yeah. I I mean, if that's true, of course that's concerning, that he never felt comfortable enough to come out. I can't see the sort of risk to career. I mean, you know, Life with Louis, the cartoon in the 90s, was very successful. Hosting Family Feud, I mean, you get that job because you are acceptable to America, right, with a very conservative audience. So all of that, like, the the prospect that he might have been closeted gay is really upsetting, but I don't I don't know how far to go with that if the evidence for it is pretty thin.
1: Yeah, it's pure conjecture, right? Right, like, we don't it know. Is, it, it is yes. It, it would be saddening and heartbreaking if, if he true. was, and it was a key role in his life and his happiness, and he felt like he had to withhold it. Yeah, that would be awful. I would hate that. There is also another possibility, another narrative that just, like, romance and sexuality just aren't that important to him. There's just so much we don't
2: know here, and it feels weird to me to, like, speculate on all this. If we want to bring this back to the North Star of Famous and Gravy, desirability and ingredients for the secret sauce of life, I'm not sure what to extract here other than it gives me pause that there might have been a secret. uh, And if that's not true, then, you know— I wonder if he felt loved and validated in a sexual relationship anywhere. You don't see a ton of evidence for it, but we don't really know.
1: Yeah. Maybe one last thing to ask, though. Does it does his life look lonely to you? That's a great question. I think that's the perfect summation of it. Uh, it does not. Yeah.
2: And it's partly because of how his friends talk about him. I mean, even in that Bob Saget interview, Bob Saget says, man, every time I see you, I just want to give you a big hug. I don't think he looks especially lonely for somebody who is, you know, objectively a bachelor for most of his life.
1: Yeah. He had deep friendships and deep connections. And it seems like he he was very active in surrounding himself with friends. I think it's
2: also important to say maybe here, and this could come up later, but he talks about being an Overeaters Anonymous, which is also a support group where I think that there is a lot of love available, right? Among other things. So I do think he's got love coming in and going out. But yeah, yeah, mostly this category is a question mark for me. All right, category five, net worth. 10 million. 10
1: million. I love it. Love that number. It's a great number for Louis Anderson. It's a great number overall. It is. It's a great number for Louis Anderson. And I'm getting increasingly curious about this category. One, we know the flaws of net worth being your value at death, which doesn't necessarily mean anything about what you've accumulated um
2: it does sound like okay after he loses the family feud job in the early 2000s like that's when he moves to vegas and has like a theater named after him he is a vegas act for you know 10 plus years yes like that is a, a his steady job and a steady stream and he seems to love it and he ventures out on the road some but he's got stability
1: yeah, and I think what's important here is he grew up like dirt, 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 dirt poor, poor. yeah. He talks about growing up in the projects. Yes. Right, 11 children.
2: He's number 10 of 11. He talks about an older sibling being like 20 years older than him. His mom was, I think, in her early 40s when Louis was born.
1: Yeah, you and know? father was like mid-50s. Yeah, yeah.
2: and just a hard life in St. Paul. Yeah. It sounds
1: like. Yeah, so there's triumph yeah. in the wealth. In
2: ten million, yeah. Yes. And I, I mean, and took his took his mom to Europe and shit like that. You know, yeah. and like yeah. I think
1: there's I, I think there's yeah, there's a lot of great things to say about it. Yeah. The sources I, I found very interesting. So Family Feud, hosting it from ninety nine to two thousand two, I paid a million and a half dollars a year. Really? Yes. Wow. That's yeah. lucrative. Yeah, I, I guess,
2: you know, ever since the Alex Trebek episode, where <laughs> I just, learned that he got $250 million, like, Jesus Christ, these game show hosts, that's a windfall. Like, big, big money if you are able to land that gig and keep it for a
1: while. When you've only got one cast member, essentially. So, okay, that
2: makes sense for a good—what other sources
1: did you come up with? Just the accumulation of everything he'd done. I think a lot of this is Life with Louie, and maybe it's even some baskets and the other TV shows, even probably small, small— Uh, royalties from coming to America. Yeah. He was making $120,000 a year in purely residual income. Is that right? Purely passive income and royalty income from all of this life's work that he'd done. Well, anything more to say about net worth? No, it just seems about right. I like it for him.
2: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Category six, Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, or Halls of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances on SNL or The Simpsons, as well as impersonations. So, on The Simpsons, he played himself on an episode called "Crusty Gets Cancelled, which originally aired uh, May 13th, 1993. He was also impersonated on The Simpsons. Also worth mentioning, this is a weirdo, there's something called Louie Live at The Simpsons. So... Life with Louie was a Fox Kids property. I didn't watch this whole thing, but there is a crossover episode where Louie wakes up in a real-life version of The Simpsons. Hey, where am I? This isn't
0: my bed.
1: your bags and join Louie live at The Simpsons next Saturday right here on Fox Kids. And who in the heck is Bart Simpson anyway?
2: So it was a kind of cross promo between life with Louie and The Simpsons. SNL, no hosting or guesting. That kind of surprised me. I would have thought at some point he might have floated through SNL. It just seems like... I
1: would have really thought
2: so too. Yeah, I I, I was surprised to find nothing and I, I dug pretty deep. Other than a few impersonations, his likeness was never on SNL. That leads me to the next thing. Absolutely, he was on Arsenio Hall. They became friends on the set of Coming to America. There's at least one appearance in 1992, and I saw mention of others.
0: Perot, I don't know, he's a billionaire. (laughs) You know, have him just distribute some of that money. (laughs) I'll tell you what. Okay. Why doesn't Ross Perot right now take a half of all of his money if he's really serious about leading this country and we would distribute it to the people who need it there's no excuse that there's a homeless person and that there's anybody laying in the street and it is not a a thing for november it's a thing for tomorrow
2: no hollywood star as of 2023 kind of a mixed story but i think it tracks
1: yeah i let me say I how famous is he on you know I think he's 10 million dollars not on Saturday night live not invited to like be on the set famous. Yeah. Which I kind of love. I
2: do too. I mean even the baskets thing which gets mentioned in the first line of his obituary, that's
1: a relatively obscure show. Yes. But let me just say, I think it looks pretty desirable. Like, I think Louis this Amshun level is, of fame looks like desirable. yeah. This level of fame, the whole arc of the forty-year yeah. career, the things that he was involved in, dealing with very high-profile stuff as well as like very low-key stuff. Yeah, I just like it. It's varied and it's not so big that it's not private. There's validation in your work. There's recognition in your work. You are loved and adored by a certain amount. Yeah. Of people, but your every move is not being tracked.
2: And he's definitely like part of the tribe of comics, as well as talk show hosts. Like his appearances on Craig Ferguson are great, his appearances on Conan are great. Like, you know, he's always kind of there for anybody who needs him to pop on and be funny for seven minutes.
0: Where are you at the Wild Horse Casino? Yes. The- tomorrow night I'm at uh, Wise Guys in Ogden, Utah. Right. I'm going to see the Mormons, and then I'm going to see the horses. <laughs> <laughs> do you do a lot of horse riding yourself? Well, you know, I always wanted to be a jockey. Uh. Too tall. Oh.
3: <laughs>
0: really? No, when, when I head towards the horses, they duck. <laughs> They're trying
3: to avoid eye <laughs> contact. They, oh, 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 no, no.
1: You're getting enough recognition, enough validation, enough affirmation. Yeah. But you're not on the other end that, like, when fame looks like it sucks. Yeah. Category
2: seven? Yes. Category seven, over, under. In this category, we look at the life expectancy for the year somebody was born to see if they beat the house odds and as a measure of grace. So the life expectancy for a man born in the USA in 1953 was
1: approximately
2: 66.6 years. Louis lived to 68.
1: Pretty much right there.
2: For a man as large as he is, 68, it seems like that's what I would have expected.
1: Yeah. Is Is there some guilt in saying that? yeah of course I can see it yeah
2: here. yeah I mean yes there is of course there is but it's also he died of cancer a lymphoma not directly related to weight or a heart attack or anything like that although I think that there's confounding factors if you are as heavy as he was yeah I don't know I guess it's shitty to say but it, it, it didn't shock me when I learned Louis Anderson had died at age 68
1: yeah mean neither
2: yeah I, I, I think it probably didn't shock a lot of people I don't know how to put this, but I, I do think that Louie Anderson was an overeater's anonymous. That probably my understanding of things means he recognized his eating as an addiction.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's a it's a hard one because you have to eat to live, right? It's not like you know, drugs or other or alcohol or other substances where abstinence is an option. Yes. The other thing that makes that different is that it's visible to the outside world. If you are struggling with drugs or alcohol, yeah, it may be evident from your behavior that you're drunk or stoned or high or whatever. Like, everybody knows if you are struggling with food, especially if you're telling people you're struggling with food. So... There is something about, like, it has common features with other forms of addiction. And I, I think if you participate in that program, those things have to be true. Everybody's having their own crack. Food's mine.
0: I'm on a food plan now. You know, where they give you the whole week. I'm up to next Wednesday. <laughs> you can't give a person my size the whole week's worth. <laughs> Think about it. That's like a drug addict. Here's your drugs for the week. Thank you.
1: I love you. I think we overassume as a society the guilt and the shame that somebody that is that overweight carries. Yeah. Right. And that's why we're we're very sensitive to it because we we certainly don't want to touch or make guilt and shame any any worse than it might be. Right. But I actually don't think it's it's possible that it's not nearly as bad as we project it. Yeah. Right? Like, in this guy was a lot of acceptance.
2: Sure. But I guess the other point in bringing up addiction as a part of this is, you know, power of choice and whether or not you've lost that when it comes to any behavior, in this case, food. Anyway, let's get back
1: to this category. Do you want to say anything more about Grace. Yeah, I do want to say at least career-wise, I love the second act. I love that he did yeah. so well in those last, you know, five, six years of his life. And
2: it's not just baskets, although I think that's the most important thing. I think more than anything else, it was discovering a love of acting. I heard him in interviews talk about, like, I think I could do more. I think I could really be a great actor.
1: Yeah. And
2: I, had he lived longer, I would have liked to have seen that, actually. Yeah. Um, because I th- I think that there is more... I don't know, humanity, empathy, and character inside him that can go in a lot of different directions.
1: Yeah. so but Which I, is graceful. Totally. As much as we, we want to look for the way that the, our best days are ahead of us, yeah. I think Louis Anderson is a shining example of how well he did in the end of his career.
2: Yes, I agree with that. And I think that's a really important thing to point out. Yes. Let's pause.
0: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the
2: Jennifer Flowers.
1: Jennifer Flowers is alive.
2: The rules are simple. Dead are alive. She is 72 years old, still with us. Christ, we are so old. John Cougar Mellencamp. Alive. Very alive. Still rocking in the free world. Uh, that would be Neil Young. I think it's still R-O-C-K-N in the USA at 71 years old. Charlton Heston.
4: And his cold, dead hands, so I'm assuming he's still alive.
2: His hands are actually dead now. We lost them in 2008. (laughs) Test your knowledge. DeadOrAliveApp.com. Category 8. This is where we start getting at the more introspective questions. The first of these categories is Man in the Mirror. What do they think about their own reflection? All I wrote was hard to see it. You seem to have something you want to say here. I wrote down one word, which is acceptance. But is that with a period or with a question mark? There was no punctuation around (laughs) it whatsoever. (laughs) But is it not a question to you?
1: It is. It's absolutely a question. But he was public about it very much. He did all the work that he could do on it. Yeah. I don't think he looked in the mirror every day and be like, God, if I was only skinnier. You know? I don't yeah. think that. I think I think he found the the reasons that he that he had an eating problem. Yeah. You know, he related to them, he worked them out through other ways. He treated it like a disease.
2: What Yeah, what about the thing about like it being a threat to his career? I mean, you know, that 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 he is known as the guy who will make jokes about his weight. To be skinny, does that hurt your marketability? I mean Does it
1: hurt your ability to play any other character?
2: Right. I mean, again, to bring up addiction, I think this comes up with musicians who feel like I can only write when I'm drunk or high or something, right? Authors who feel like they need to get loaded for the words to come pouring out. Yeah. You know, the who am I and how I get to who I am can become tangled up in, well, the things I do to get to who I am also come mm-hmm. with problematic behavior. So. I do see, on some level, that there is acceptance that he has a problem. Toast with butter is a thing I can't stop doing, right? And the, and this is a threat to my health, if nothing else. But does he look in the mirror with a lot of judgment and say, "Gosh, I wish I were skinnier"? Uh, yeah, I, I hear your point there. Maybe not. Is that what you're— is That that, that you're? is my point. Yeah, yeah,
1: I don't think he does. I don't think he. I don't think he loves it. He's not posing for himself in the mirror. Yeah, naked. but I, but I don't think he has a bad relationship with it.
2: Okay, and if that's what you mean by acceptance, I see a lot of evidence that he took steps to remove self-judgment as much as possible. Yes. And if that's what Man in the Mirror is partly about, I agree with
1: that. And I, I want to I put a twist on this. What if we just say, like, forget about the body? And just look at the face. Just look at the face. He's yeah. got a great face, man. Yeah, he does have a great face. He really does. Like he's he's got a he's got an infectious smile. Yeah. Like the gap tooth is is sort of kind of charming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's got. And there's a
2: boyish quality for sure. He's very bright. and He's very, got very
1: cool. great complexion. Yeah. Like you know the, the hair was kind of stringy, but it's pretty good. Yeah, you know, yeah, it, yeah, it was. Yeah. He's got a nice wave going. Yeah. Like this is, I, again, like just a, he's smiley. Yeah, too. yeah. He's yeah. genial. Yeah. You can just look at the face and be okay. You, you know the story behind the body. You do the work that you can, but you do a certain acceptance, and maybe you just look at the face. I love that, and I'm glad you pointed it out, and I agree.
2: All right. Category nine, outgoing message. Like Man in the Mirror, how do we think they felt about the sound of their own voice when they heard it on an answering machine or outgoing voicemail, and would they have used it, or would they have used the default setting in recording it themselves? I
1: think he liked it a lot. I think he liked it a lot. It's one of those that, like, you shouldn't like. Like, it's, it's, it's as nasally <laughs> right. as I It's just, like, it, it's kind of meant... It, it was seems voice like it that would got him so to annoying. roll on baskets. It's one of those voices that just works and you like it, but you shouldn't. It's like yeah. the smell of gasoline. You're like, <laughs> why do we enjoy this? Yeah, so I I, I think there's
2: a resound. And I also think that humility is absolutely there. I think he 100% would have said, you've reached the voicemail of Louis Anderson." You know, and there probably would have been a joke. Maybe it's a foreword.
1: Yeah, yeah, I bet it was. So, yeah, I, I think high marks all around for this. Let's move on. Category 10. Regrets, public or private?
2: What we really want to know is what, if anything, kept this person awake at night? I have two in public. So there is this blackmailing incident, which we talked about. It also does sound like he had some regret about the family feud saga. It was a little bit of how hard he worked at it. He talks about being a little bit cocky because that's such a natural gig for him to land. Like he seems like kind of a game show host of a family-friendly show. And separate and apart from what's going on in his personal life, he talks about it like I could have worked harder and I was resting on my laurels during key moments of that opportunity. And he was let go. So I think he regrets that. Uh, And then I think also, you know, I I do think the letter writing to all kinds of people leads to some forgiveness. But he certainly talks in the the book I read, you know, Mom, I wish you were here. I wish I'd ask you these things. There's a lot of sort of smaller level regrets of making peace with people while they're still here on this earth and telling you them you love them and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because he actually closed his sets, like especially during this very long Vegas run. And that was, that's his message to the world is like, if you want to say things to your family or learn things from them, do it now. Yeah. Well,
0: this has been a lot of fun, but you know what? You can have anything you want. You can have any position you want in your life. But really the connection that I've always enjoyed is people. And that's the only thing we really have when you wipe out all the possessions, all that other crap that we just have each other when it's down to that basic thing. So
2: thanks a lot. Did you have anything else in regrets? No, not really. Okay. Uh, Let's move on. Category 11. Good dreams, bad dreams. This is not about personal perception, but rather does this person have a haunted look in the eye? Something that suggests inner turmoil, inner demons, or unresolved trauma. I had a very conclusive, I see bad dreams. Okay. I see a darkness in the eye. As soon as I was like, let me go take a look, I saw it immediately. And I think it's not surprising given the very troubled childhood he had. And you see it when he slips into characters. I mean, he does this a lot in his comedy where he'll... My dad goes, hey, kids. That's how my dad
0: talked. Hey. (laughs) Hey, guys. Eh? That was the talk back. Hey, what the hell? (laughs) Yeah. Hi, kids. He goes, why don't we go over to the Moose Lodge here? You want something, Louie? No. I don't want anything. We shouldn't be here. We should call Mom tell her we're coming back right now. Oh, you goddamn baby.
2: There is a darkness that, to me, came through unmistakably. Whether or not, I don't think that this is bad dreams in terms of regret and self-judgment, necessarily. I just think that there's a lot of early childhood trauma in his life of coming home to a father who you never knew what you were getting and... You know, uh, um, I think he's got nothing but love for his mother, but her attention is going to be divided between 11 children. And he does describe her as being sort of tired by the time he came along. So I think that there are needs in him that go unmet. And I think that there is very confusing messages of what love is and how he is and is not experiencing that. I think he gets to a better place with it, but I think that that... The stuff he acquired early on in life, I absolutely see bad dreams.
1: So I I can latch on to your point with also like the abusive father, you know, who was alcoholic and he said didn't hit him, but always reminded them that he had a gun. Right. Like he's telling (laughs) these like little children. Yeah. So all that just awful Terrible, you know. He was bullied a lot before yeah. his weight. He was teased a lot. He airs that out a lot on stage. Yeah, but I don't see it nearly as much as you do. Mm. I actually see some clarity there, and I see a guy that's done so much work and so much airing of his past, his demons, his insecurities. That I honestly, truly think he sleeps well. I see a guy that can bring out joy, can have happiness despite all of this backstory or all of these societal biases. Yeah. And I see clarity.
2: I, I agree with that in some ways, Ahmet. But when I look in the eyes, and at just that test, when I look in the eyes, I do see pain.
1: Yeah. I see pain. And it's that simple. It's interesting. I don't. It's, it's
2: so unmistakable to me.
1: Wow. Disagree? I saw clarity. All right.
2: Next category, Category 12. Coffee, cocktail, or cannabis? This is where we ask which one would we most want to do with our dead celebrity? This may be a question of what drug sounds like the most fun to partake with this person, or another philosophy is that a particular kind of drug might allow access to a part of them we are most curious about. You go first. All right. Uh, I went cannabis. Um, And it's pretty simple. I don't have a whole lot of questions here. I don't need to go too deep. I feel like Will go deep if he wants to go deep. And I'd certainly like to have honest conversations about him. I mean, some of the, let's call it unconscious bias that I think I bring to the table when it comes to, you know, my attitude that I maybe don't recognize in terms of how I talk to people and how I see and don't see people who are obese and overweight. I'd love to hash that out with him because I think he'd be very honest. But mostly I just want to hang. I I want the cannabis because I think he is a. fantastic storyteller like I I mean he paces things out he makes the scenes really real he's got that just relatable quality that I think I just hang out and laugh and enjoy and and these don't even have to be funny stories I mean I did hear one story about him being at a gambling in a card game or something where he went down 80,000 and he owed some bookie 80,000 and he drives to Vegas and manages to make it all back in like one marathon run and the way he tells the story is great.
0: I go, if I win this, I'll have 110,000, right? I split them, I win both of them, right? But I don't blackjack, but I win them both. So I got 110,000. I think it's like six in the morning. I got a 7 a.m. flight because I have to shoot a commercial
2: for (laughs) 7-Eleven. I just think he's probably full of things like that, so I think he's probably got great stories. I want to hear about him, you know, and, and probably a joint. I like to just pass a joint back and forth.
1: What about you? I, I do see the storytelling. I see a guy that that actually can make me laugh, yeah. Uh, and I do want that, but I'm landing on coffee. And this is going back to to what you say very often is that when you see a certain level of genius, you know, you want to pick at the brain. And I kind of see that not in necessarily his art, but in his, his ability to cope and, and let go of hang-ups. Yeah. And that's the conversation I think I want to have with Louis Anderson over some coffee. Okay. I applaud this guy. Like, he really has a good relationship with hangups. hang-ups. Yeah. And uh, I just want to feed off a little bit of that.
2: And humanity plus comedy, I, I want to hang out with that. Oh, you it's know? the best. That's, that's, that's what it's all about. Final category, The Vanderbeek, named after James Vanderbeek, who famously said in Varsity Blues, I don't want your life. We've arrived on it. Do you want Louis Anderson's life? Before our conversation, I thought I was going to be fighting an uphill battle because I don't think I had fully recognized and internalized and been impressed with the amount of work that I think he's done, both in his comedy in his letter writing, in his relationships, all of these are tools that are not just nice add-ons. I feel like they're fundamental, and I feel like the pursuit of those comes with such integrity and such, I don't know, richness and humanity that I'm very i'm 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 so much more impressed with him than I expected to be. But at the same time, as you and I always say, Admiration and desirability are two different things. Mm-hmm. So, I've certainly grown in my admiration for him and my love for him. And I have unquestionably learned a lot and have even identified things that are very practical that I plan on bringing into my life. My relationship to my own tears and crying. I think I want to think about letter writing. And, you know, there's other stuff that's come up along the way that where I feel like this is really worth thinking about in terms of how. All of us deal with our own pain and trauma. Earlier when you and I were talking about does his life look lonely, we both said no. I don't know. I don't know, actually. I think that's a really hard question. How lonely was this guy? I see a lot that I admire to, that he used to deal with his loneliness, and I feel like he does have community, and he does have real relationships and connections with, with people. <sighs> You know what actually gives me the biggest pause here? I hate
1: Vegas.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I really hate Las Vegas. I'm sorry. The surrounding area is beautiful. That town bums me the fuck out.
1: And there is something about the... Having to roll into a casino every night for 20 years. Yeah.
2: There's something very lonely to me about Vegas. (sighs) Vegas may be the deal breaker for me. Yeah. And it goes in... Part with some suspicions that I have about maybe he was lonelier than we've been talking about so far in this conversation. So, no, I don't want your life, Louis Anderson.
1: You. I mean, like I said, I, I love the career. I love the level of fame. I love the arc. I love the how well he did at the end. I like the guy, but we're separating that as we do in this category loneliness I'm going to go back to that again I I don't think he is like I, I really don't think he is but it's not the flavor of non loneliness that I think I want and just the the big question marks that we had around love and marriage. Yeah, I think that's one of my biggest pauses. Yeah, and it's a weird thing to say is that I just I just don't see the intimacy, and I'm not necessarily talking about like romantic physical intimacy. Intimacy, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm just talking about you know intimate relationships, yeah. and a weird thing to say from a guy that is self chosen to be single still at age forty five. Right. From me, but I just don't. The intimacy seems to be the thing missing. And it's a little difficult to put into words because I'm not equating that to the fact that he's not married necessarily. I am somewhat saying that his sexuality or how he related to romantic love could not be public or he was not comfortable talking about it or it's just unknown. Yeah. That is part of it. But I think it's the overall lack of personal intimacy or the no evidence of it yeah. and maybe it was there Yeah, and I hope it was Yeah, but based on everything that we can accumulate that's somewhat publicly available and through all avenues of research I don't see it and that's a deal breaker for me so you're a no I'm afraid I'm a no yeah, yeah. not a huge no yeah not a huge no I'm yeah. a 40% no okay we're both no We're both now. Okay, Michael Osborne. You are no longer Michael Osborne. You are now Louis Anderson. Uh. (laughs) Uh, You have died. You are at the pearly gates. In front of you is a man called St. Peter, who is the proxy for all things afterlife. You have an opportunity to make your pitch. So what is the one contribution that you have made to this world where it is better than you found it? St. Peter, Louis
2: here. I had a very painful life in a lot of ways. But like so many before me, I tried to turn my trauma into a gift, into something that I could give back. And in doing that through comedy and through a lot of public struggle, I think I might have offered a different model for what it means to be a man what it means to be a proud man A vulnerable man but a man whose life was filled with joy and friendship and connection despite all the pain i think we need those examples and i tried to be as vulnerable as i could possibly be so that everybody felt like they belonged for that i hope you let me in Before you leave, Famous and Gravy listeners, if you are interested in participating in our opening quiz where we reveal the dead celebrity, then please send us an email. You can reach us at hello at famousandgravy.com. Recordings usually take less than five minutes, and we love hearing from you. Otherwise, thank you for listening to this episode. If you're enjoying our show and you don't feel like emailing us, please tell your friends about us. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Famous and We also have a newsletter, which you can sign up for on our website, famousengravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. Thank you again for listening. See you next time.